Hello, and thanks for finding us. Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is David, and I am kicking off Lecture 5 in our course on theology and culture this fall. One quick caveat I give every time these lectures are being produced for a discussion-based course and then made available here for anyone to listen to. So if you're joining in, I'd really recommend you go back and start at Lecture 1. And today's topic is going to be on the doctrine of the Imago Dei, or the image of God. So I'm just going to pray to kick us off and we'll dive in. Jesus, we invite you to be present with us as we engage our minds to listen and learn. Um, We submit to your presence and your spirit and just acknowledge that we're utterly dependent upon you to really come to anything that is helpful and transforming and yeah, fills us with confidence. So we just acknowledge our dependence on you and invite you to guide my words as I try to summarize the life and work of Stanley Grenz, and we invite you to enlighten and give us insight as we reflect on his thoughts. Amen. So, quick recap, catching us up. Stanley Grenz was a Baptist theologian who did most of his professional work in the 1990s and early 2000s before his untimely death in 2005. And in Stan's judgment, American Christianity had adapted its understanding and concepts of truth to fit the cultural demands of the modern age. But in the latter part of the 20th century, specifically from the 1970s forward, the culture had begun to shift, at least in the West and now through globalization, really in any part of the world that has access to technology and media. And these new understandings about truth and uh, human personhood had become so dominant and prevalent that many Christians who were still entrenched in this modern, these modern modes of thought perceived post-modernity to be kind of an attack on the truthfulness of Christianity and the truthfulness of their beliefs. And in Stan's estimation, this was actually an unnecessary fear. And he instead believed that these cultural shifts could open up opportunity for a vibrant renewal of biblical faith. And in the last lecture, we focused on the topic of epistemology and its ongoing evolution through um, different types of theories of correspondence, uh, foundationalism, which is kind of a subset of correspondence, which Stan was very critical of, coherence and pragmatism, which are kind of adding some more nuance to simple correspondence theories of truth. And then we dove into a little bit of some what I'd call transitional approaches that have their roots kind of in the modern era, but don't really take on, um, hit the mainstream until the postmodern era. So practices within philosophy and epistemology like phenomenology, Uh, and social constructivism, which are really kind of linguistic turns towards towards epistemological frameworks, like starting to understand that language is not just a passive tool to describe reality, but language actually informs and shapes the reality that we perceive. Um, And then lastly, we mentioned briefly kind of more deflationary theories of truth, uh, which I would just kind of simplify as total deconstructive theories where uh, the individual person is completely isolated in the world of epistemology and no longer has access to metaphysics. And in like extreme examples in some philosophy departments uh, around the West, there's even been debates of canceling metaphysics courses and no longer offering metaphysics because it doesn't make sense to talk about reality when we're stuck in our perception of it and we're stuck in epistemology. So when we looked at how Stan kind of uh, engaged in these schools of thought to explore how truth is not only simply correspondence, coherence, uh, and coherence, but also he adds to it a bunch of distinctives that he draws out of 
the church heritage and really from uh, the scriptures that truth functions in a, a manner that requires our participation as a knower. It's not something we can just cognitively ascend to. We have to have skin in the game. We have to risk. We have to use our bodies. We have to participate to come to knowledge of things. And that's true for Christian knowledge of, say, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's also true in the sciences. If you are a chemical physicist studying crystals or uh, whatever discipline you're doing. Um, He also emphasized that truth is linguistically constructed, drawing from those phenomenological and kind of constructivist theories. And fundamentally narratival. So story is kind of the basic logic that language uses to help humans shape their worldviews and then it's also pragmatic drawing from one of the theories we talked about that um, it it needs to have implications for real life it can't just be uh, theories and uh, detached from emotions affections and ethical moral situations Uh, he would add also that that truth is fundamentally fiduciary in nature or faith-based so again even even for a scientist, um, that person has to entrust themselves to a long history of the, within their discipline, and they don't, you know, say I'm studying to be a physicist, which I did. Uh, I didn't go back and repeat Newton's uh, experimentations that led to Newtonian mechanics. I just kind of receive those and trust that they are uh, valid and that I can rely on them and. And the whole academic community within itself and its inner dialogue is trusting and relying upon the integrity of other members within. So um, not comparing that directly to biblical faith, but just just this reality that all knowledge requires a level of risk and trust. And then lastly, he draws in his three motifs for theology of community, trinity, and eschatology and kind of connects those to how truth functions. And, um, yeah, if you missed that lecture, go back and have a listen. So today, though, we're going to be bringing everything we've talked about together under the banner of this biblical motif called the image of God or the Imago Dei in Latin, which it's commonly referred to. And this is Grenz trying to unpack the cultural moment he lived and, and practiced theology in and now trying to give a theological answer to the problems that he saw culture leaving us with as humans. So he is in some ways, as a true uh, conservative Christian, Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christian, at the end of the day falling back on trusting in the revelation of God uh, and that God has provided sufficient answers for these deep cultural questions that have emerged. So I want to sandwich this little lecture today with two stories about Paul that I think in many ways embody what Grenz was after all along. And the first one's from uh, Luke's writing in Acts. And the context starts in like Acts 24, where Paul is in placed in prison in Caesarea. And this local authority figure, kind of a local regional governor named Festus, uh, has brought him before King Agrippa in Acts 26 to kind of explain and testify to the Jewish charges that are being leveled against Paul. And basically the whole narrative is sounds like Festus just, Paul has appealed to Caesar and wants to go to Rome, but Festus doesn't want to send him there if, if he doesn't have a good reason to send him. So there's this kind of trial scene that plays out where Paul is recounting his story of conversion where he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And and then he gets to kind of the climax of explaining the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And at this point, Festus, this uh, secular, uh, by all standards, governor, interrupts him and says, Paul, you are out of your mind. And he, he says, your great learning has driven you insane. Paul responds, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. And the king, 
is familiar with these things, referring to King Agrippa, and I can speak with him freely. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And then King Agrippa responds, do you think that in such a short amount of time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul replies, short or long, I pray that God Pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. And I love this story um, because the goal of this lecture is to outline how theology actually provides explanatory answers and solutions for the postmodern person who's, who's interested or curious in Jesus. And with Festus, as I ramble on today about the Imago Dei, some of you might be thinking that Grenz and, and I have been made mad by all of our learning and study. Uh, but in some sense, I think this is what Grenz was after because he's longing for Christianity to feel secure in a message that they proclaim that is built on faith and revelation from God, not built on rationality and human wisdom. So for Paul, the Christian message has a, a truthfulness and a logic of its own, but it did not come to him. It's not disseminated to him through his learning and study. Uh, it's disseminated through this encounter with the living Christ and the power of God. And as Paul kind of expounds elsewhere, um, in many ways, the gospel is foolishness to those who don't believe, but it's the power of God to those who do. So with that caveat, uh, we will jump in. So where, ha where has culture left us in this postmodern age? And here, I think more than anywhere is where Grenz has been so misread and so deeply misunderstood, far from drawing from culture to then change his theology or uh, try and change scripture, scripture, Grenz so embedded himself in trying to understand culture and be a good listener so that he could bring the good news into the culture where it most needed it. So the situation, as Grenz saw it, is not that far from what postmodernism is claiming. Humans are indeed trapped within their cultural situations, biases, limitations, and we do not have objective knowledge, universal knowledge of reality as the modern narrative has kind of promised. Rather, postmodernity has helped expose that our knowledge is conditioned, broken, biased, and so on. And thus, Grenz concedes and acknowledges that many of postmodernity's critiques have been valid, even good, in kind of uh, humbling the modern mind and inviting this epistemological humility, or as, as a friend of mine who's a professor in Minnesota calls it, uh, chastised rationality. It's an appropriate level of humility. Um, and, but he's also highly aware that postmodernity has primarily been a deconstructivist movement. It's primarily been a, a movement of criticism and, and tearing down structures and, and frameworks that were in place, even institutions or uh, traditions that were in place. And, and this exposure has, has left us kind of uh, fragmented as modern, as postmodern people. And it has not provided much in the way of reconstruction. So in this year, 2020, more than ever before, your average person living in America or in some Western nation or who's becoming increasingly modern through technology and access to it by globalization, right? The average person living in the postmodern age more than ever feels a sense of psychic fragmentation, a chaos in the mind, a, a loss of self, a loss of, of or they're the psychically feeling the effects of the loss of trust in leaders, institutions, or anything reliable, right? And the exposure of knowledge as inherently subjective and, and the seemingly infinite options in our pluralistic world, it leads, to, it leads to a deep loss of a sense of identity, a deep, a deep um, feeling of almost hopelessness or uh, despondence, right? Um, 
I think of, you know, the, the, you might encapsulate the implications of postmodernity if carried to its logical conclusions through the life of uh, Kurt Cobain, the lead singer from Nirvana, right? It's, it leads to this fatalistic, what's the point of anything? We can't know anything anyways. And in a world that's constantly positioned in a posture of tearing down traditions, history, norms, um, not saying that some of that hasn't been good, but, but it's incomplete. It, it leaves the individual grasping for reconstruction of their map and their compass, their sense of the world and their sense of self. So just to bring this maybe closer to home, I'll give a little case study. Uh, so some people have kind of theorized how in a secular society where the transcendent or concepts of God have uh, all but been removed, there's this vacuum created by deconstruction. And it needs to be filled by something that gives a sense of meaning and identity to people. So in, in the postmodern age, in the 21st century here, it's not being filled by traditional religions, but rather by expressions of new age, spirituality, um, materialistic, consumeristic indulgence. And I think most noteworthy, the one we feel the most right now in November of 2020, is politics. And politics, for example, rather ironically, could be seen as quasi-religious in this sense. Because a political ideology or political worldview, when... um, when it fills in this vacuum or void that has been created by deconstruction, it attempts to tell a national history from a a specific perspective. It gives a sense of, it it offers this sense of salvation and hope. And and further, it offers a sense of national identity or partisan identity that the adherent can then make sense of themselves through. Uh, can judge others by and then it also provides a a pretty defined value system by which that person can make choices moral ethical decisions in their life and in the grand sense uh, these political partisan groups are even providing like an eschatology or a sense of promising a new age a new era where things will be different uh, a future that will be the logical kind of outflow of their interpretation of redeeming the broken past and so i'm not and i don't mean to entirely critique this or to critique uh, the idea that people should be engaged politically or passionate about their political views but i just want to highlight that in the wake of postmodernity kind of creating this vacuum for identity and meaning of the sense of a loss of self of who are we and what can we trust um, politics become a very natural substitute to take on this central place of of defining meaning and value and a sense of self, which which is why when you come up against or challenge someone's political views in this current age, you're not merely engaging in dialogue or discourse rationally, but you are challenging something deeply personal and visceral. You are challenging their sense of of the world and how they make sense of history, how they have placed their hope in the future, and most importantly, their sense of self and self-definition. So Grenz perceived that this vacuum was being created by postmodernity, and and he perceived that there were going to be many things that started to fill it, that again, your average person would not classify as religious, but that they would be filling these, these deeply human needs, these these needs of the soul to have a sense of stability and clarity to navigate life. And in that sense, um, would fulfill this religious need that is arguably universal for all humans. And so postmodernity creates this sinkhole beneath the establishments and institutions of modernity. And Grenz is now kind of at the climax of his career between 2001 and 2005, going to offer a a theological answer to try and help fill that vacuum, not grounded in human wisdom, but in the revelation of God, uh, passed down through God's action in the world and recorded in scripture, reflected upon by the church, 
And now here in the present culture, he's trying to communicate it to a postmodern world. So that is where we are left off and we're jumping back into one of his specific motifs. So as we discussed in lecture three, the work of theology is constantly trying to take in and, and synthesize the meaning of the whole to organize these ideas so that we can understand the big picture. And just to give a comparison, historically at least, like the field of biblical studies has been more concerned with accurate kind of historical, cultural, and linguistic understandings of a specific text within the canon of Scripture. So it's thought to be focused on more small, individual, deep studies, whereas theology is trying to step back and do more meta-organization or thinking and reflection, taking into account the whole canon of Scripture, the whole context of the culture, and the whole context of history. So it's thought to be a broader discipline. Um, in, in kind of recent years, there's been a really healthy movement, actually, of of these kind of traditional silos being broken down where biblical scholars and theologians are starting to work together better and to think together. Um, there's a movement within theology called Theological Interpretation of Scripture, or TIS, that's trying to glean more from biblical studies. And then there's also, you know, many biblical scholars, I think of N.T. Wright or Michael Bird down in Australia, who are practicing biblical theology, trying to think in a narrative fashion. So, um, But again, the work of theology inherently requires us to have some guiding principles to, that we can organize our thoughts on, right? Even just practically, if, if you're going to sit down and try and summarize the views of Christianity, you have to start somewhere. So you have to have a method. You have to have a way to organize your thoughts. And hopefully the way you're organizing those thoughts actually are being derived from the thing you're trying to organize. So you're not just bringing in your opinions or imposing your ideas on it, but you're letting the thing you're trying to summarize almost speak for itself and, and give you the principles. And for Grenz, these three guiding principles, or he calls them theological motifs that we learn are uh, are the three best that, in his judgment, he can find throughout church history and scripture, are the Trinity, community, and eschatology. And today we're going to focus a little bit on this central theme, which was not unintentional, of community. Because for Grenz, it's the defining thing that helps us make sense of Christianity. So, early on in his writing, his first organizing theme was actually the kingdom of God, which is a dominant Old Testament theme. And again, it's picked up in, especially in the gospel of Matthew, as essentially being the message that Jesus is announcing during his ministry prior to his death and resurrection. It's this message of the kingdom of God coming near, the reign and rule of God coming near. And Grenz narrates through scripture and basically says, well, the kingdom of God, at least for modern people, it's a little too vague. We don't, maybe if you were a first century Jew, that, that phrase would make a lot of sense to you. But for modern people, that phrasing just doesn't, it's so culturally distant. We need to clarify what, what is the kingdom of God. And for him, this is where he derives his theme of community, because wherever we see the kingdom of God at work in the scriptures, whether we're in the Garden of Eden tracing through the story of uh, the family of Noah, the family of Abraham, the birth of Israel and the Exodus movement, the establishment of Israel in the promised land and the different kingdoms that will follow from there and different line of kings in the north and the south. And then with Jesus and his disciples. And then finally, the birth of the church at Pentecost in Acts 2. And then the expansion and its spread through the rest of the New Testament. And then finally, this prophetic kind of eschatological picture from John's vision recorded in the book of Revelation where the multitudes of people are standing before the throne of God, right? The dominant content of the kingdom of God throughout the canon of scripture is the expression of community. It's the people of God. And for Grenz, this, this is even affirmed by the robust and central role that the church has played 
um, for the last 2,000 years for Christians. And that almost inescapably, wherever people start following Jesus and trying to become his disciples, you form these little communities called the church. And philosophically, he grounds or justifies this idea of community being central in that first motif of the Trinity. So the, the fu- most fundamental thing in reality is the Trinitarian God. And, and humans are created in the image of God, which we're going to talk a lot about today. And thus, the image of God is fundamentally, just as God is social, the image of God, humanity, is fundamentally social. So community is the perfect motif for kind of encapsulating this and um, connecting humanity to God. And then lastly, on a cultural level, he identified and was deeply troubled by the rampant individualism of Western culture. Um, I mean, we, we all probably could, could attest to this just in the large number of people who would identify as a Christian or identify as a spiritually curious person, but practice this outside the bounds of any community or tradition. They are just kind of a la carte um, followers of Jesus or a la carte spiritualists, right? And Grenz felt the need to not only correct, but just to confront this um, this rampant individualism with an emphasis on the social nature, the communal nature of Christianity. And he argues that the social sciences confirm that individuals are incapable of bestowing upon themselves a sense of identity, meaning, and that humans are inescapably social animals, uh, meaning we look outside the boundaries of ourselves to understand who it is we are. And for Grenz, this, this is inextricably like a part of the gospel message that God eternal social trinity has, has spoken um, identity over, over creation, that we are his sons and daughters, right? That this is what the gospel is doing. It's validating and giving us an identity from outside of ourselves, something we're incapable of doing on our own. So that's his motif of community. And this starts to develop then. This is all through the 90s. And then in the early 2000s, 2001 especially, um, you see this distinct shift where this phrase, Imago Dei, starts to pop up in a lot of the titles of the essays he's publishing in various um, circulations and a lot of the books he's writing. And most theological textbooks, just to give a little background, have this small subsection on within the the chapter on anthropology they'll have a small subsection where they will you know explain the doctrine of the imago dei and the discussions almost always grounded first in the genesis creation narrative and specifically genesis 1 uh, verse 26 and 27 where humanity is created in the image of god male and female he created them um, in the image and likeness of god so the hebrew word there image is teslem and likeness is demut I don't know, I might be butchering that Hebrew. I do not speak Hebrew. Um, but those words are kind of unpacked in various ways and exegeted. And throughout church history, it's it's been thought to, or, or people have claimed that there's kind of three main views of what's being said here. The first one is the structural view. So this is the idea that humans are in the image of God in like in our in our hardware and our being. So... Primarily, this is, this is located in human rationality and our superior intelligence to other animals, right? So it's our rationality and our brains that distinguish us as being image bearers over and above the rest of creation. The second view is often known as the relational view, and this is more of an emphasis on a special ability or distinctive relationship that humans have with God and one another and you know it's ultimately expressed in the act of love so this is more of an emphasis on uh, the emotional kind of affective part of humanity that separates us and distinguishes us from uh, other creatures and creation and then third there's the dynamic functional view which is kind of picking up on this command that's given right after for humans to exert authority and to rule on the earth and have dominion 
And so our image of God likeness is encapsulated by our ability to exert authority and control. Um, it's what we can do. And again, various points in church history, these views have all kind of been dominate. And throughout the 90s, Grenz kind of does what every other traditional systematic theology does in his writings, where he'll summarize these views and then he'll add a little bit of nuance of his own view. And um, in in the last like 20 some years of scholarship, there's been probably a, a better view of the image of God put forth, known as like the universal representative view um, or the vice regent view. And this is drawing from a, a bit of, it's better biblical exegesis tying in some of the ancient Near Eastern contexts of Genesis 1, trying to really understand the meaning of those words, Tesalem and Demut, image and likeness, and what it eventually reveals through reading some of these studies are parallels between kind of ancient temple language, how in the ancient world a tribe or group of people would build a religious site or temple, and then in seven days they would or six days they would construct this thing and then on the sixth day or seventh day they would place like a cement or gold or silver or metal statue of the god that the temple is being created in honor of and so this this statue these are statues in ancient religions um you know they represent the authority and presence of that God, which is why you go to that holy space or site to worship that God there. It's like the the idol and statue becomes a literal mediator for the presence of that divine being. And so in this sense, if we take that same cultural framework and now we apply it to the creation narrative of the earth being formed in six days and God resting on the seventh. And on the sixth day, human beings are placed as the Tesalem and Demut, the icon and image, the likeness of their God in, in Eden, in this temple. Um, now the temple is no longer a specific religious site, but it is, it is the earth. It's creation. The whole world is God's temple and human beings are the authority representatives and whenever you are near them, you are near, or at least have the potential to be near, um, the mediating presence of this creator God. So it's kind of this more, I mean, it's a pretty breathtaking, you know, understanding of what it means to be human, that we are these representatives of this divine creator, and that our humanity and anthropology is directly connected to what he is like, um, in all components, rather than like in the first three views, trying to pick one or the other, um, which can get a little tricky, um, especially if someone is deficient in one of those first three views in the structural, relational, or functional views. So um, this yeah, this concept of representative view is kind of what Grenz uh, like espoused and argued and Again, it's a profound view, especially in the context of it being written to a bunch of people who are the descendants of slaves, Semitic slaves in Egypt, right? To be, to, to be told that you are an image bearer of God, which was a phrase rev, kind of specially set aside for the Pharaoh in Egypt, right? So there's all this historical cultural context um, that makes this concept really profound in that, for that original audience and in the context of the Torah. Um, and by the early 2000s, Grenz begins to develop his ideas on the Imago Dei much further. And he even has a couple of places where he explicitly publicly in, in publications critiques, um, some of the other leading scholars within evangelical Christianity. And he includes himself in that critique for basically belittling this doctrine and, um, kind of relegating it to this little side story or appendix. And in 2000 or 2001, Grenz writes a book called The Social God and Relational Self, which is my favorite book by far that he ever wrote. It's, it's brilliant and very dense. Um, and in it, he explains that traditional theology starts with God. Uh, it starts with, you know, explaining God's attributes and characteristics and, um, and in many ways, these discussions on the character and nature of God are a bit abstract. But 
But in the postmodern age, with its demise of objectivity and universal knowledge and human rationality and all these critiques, um, we are basically forced to start from a subjective starting point, right? And he's, he's almost just conceding to the cultural critique saying, okay, you're saying I have to start with my conditioned human perspective. So I can't speak of God with authority. I have to be content to start with anthropology. And uh, almost like he's saying, we must start where we are because nothing else is given anymore. Um, and if you try to claim more than that, you are seen as um, naive or uh, delusional at best. So he opens this book by almost embracing this starting point of anthropology and that we're stuck in our subjective knowledge. And he he does a historical narrative where he traces through kind of the origins of this concept of self, meaning the self-conscious reflection on the self or soul. So he he does a bit of background history, and then the first real player in the game that he cites um, is St. Augustine. And he traces the study of the soul or psyche all the way up to the modern discipline of psychology. And again, that word psyche, study of psyche, um, in the original Greek just means soul, mind, or spirit. Um, so it's not inherently a, a exact science, to say the least. Um, and by the end of the 19th century, Grenz basically sees that the modern self is kind of, through the study of psychology, is encapsulated as this individual, rational, disengaged, self-sufficient experimenter who is mastering knowledge. Um, and by the end of the 20th century, there's been a large augmentation to this understanding of what the human person is by the field of psychology and he calls so this is no longer the modern autonomous self we have the postmodern what he calls therapeutic self who is no longer just a rational disengaged experimenter but now is a is still self-sufficient um, but is an effective emotional um, embodied self-validating uh, person and so as alluded to earlier, this is where culture has kind of left us trying to define ourselves apart from anything outside of ourselves, apart from any community or tradition or anything to help us make meaning uh, of ourselves or our lives. And this time, Grenz is going to revisit this concept of this biblical concept of the Imago Dei. And he starts again, just like everyone always does, by tracing it from the Old Testament, Genesis 1, creation narrative, through Genesis and a few scant references we have to the Imago Dei in the Psalms. And then into the New Testament, he points to kind of Pauline theology and the way Paul will um, create this typology between Adam as the first man and Christ as the second man or the uh, the second Adam, in a sense. And he's he's inaugurating a new creation. So I'm thinking of verses like Romans 5, uh, verse 12 through 20. And in a sense, then, as the, the second Adam over a new creation, Christ is thus fulfilling our vocation and destiny as image bearers. And we can also think of verses like Romans 8, 29, where Paul writes, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And again, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, um, just as we have been born of the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Speaking again, both these verses are speaking that um, in many ways, uh, the sense of the Imago Dei is not, is not merely a, a thing about our hardware or what we're made of. It is a destiny that God has spoken over us. It's a destiny that, uh, that lies out in front of us, that we will one day become this and fulfill it. And in many ways, Christ is the... So for Paul, Romans 8.29 
um, in a lot of ways, is like the exegesis of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So Paul, for Paul, God had in mind at the creation the vocation for humanity as image bearers. He already had in mind the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus. And he already had in mind the church. And he already had in mind um, the new heavens and the new earth. And that one day we would be made like him. Right, So there's this prophetic eschatological component to the image of God that Grenz adds. And then the other really important one that he starts to see so obviously, both from Genesis 1 and then also Paul's kind of midrash, or which is a Jewish um, word for interpretation of Old Testament texts. Um, so Paul's midrash and kind of reinterpretation of the Old Testament theme, the Imago Dei, is now understood to be first inaugurated by Christ, but ultimately it's the vocation of the church, right? Like in that verse of First Corinthians, um, or sorry, in the verse from Romans 8, where Christ is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And thus the church is the embodiment of the Imago Dei. The church community as a whole is the body of Christ. And that's where... You know, this this language Paul will use in a lot of his letters of referring to us as the body of Christ. It's not just a metaphor for Paul. It is it is metaphysically, ontologically reality. It's this mysterious reality that somehow through the cross and resurrection and now through faith, repentance, faith, repentance, the forgiveness of sins, uh, the adoption by the Holy Spirit into the family of God, right, those who follow Jesus are actually being caught up in to the body of Christ, to the social community of love that represents who God is on the earth in creation. And, and again, we can think about for Paul, like where did this revelation come from? Why is he reinterpreting these themes from the Old Testament in this way? Well, even going back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the lecture, um, Paul's Damascus Road conversion Right, Jesus confronts him and says, Paul, why were you persecuting me? But Paul's never met Jesus, to our knowledge. So who was Paul persecuting? He's persecuting Stephen. He's persecuting the, the, these, this Jewish sect called the Way, who is believing that Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. So that had to be a pretty radical redefinition for Paul of First off, who Jesus was as the Messiah, but then secondly, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because that, that it's not just a cute metaphor, um, but that Christ, in a very literal, concrete, metaphysical sense, so identifies with his followers that what you do to them, it is as if you are doing it to him. And thus, for Grenz, the Imago Dei is no longer just this little appendix doctrine about um, the structure of our brains or the relationship of our feelings and ability to love or the function and what we can do, um, nor even just this ancient Near Eastern concept of being the representative statues of our God, right? The Imago Dei is the communal identity and destiny that, that echoes over humanity. It's, it's both social and teleological, meaning it's it's our God had in mind at creation our destiny to be conformed into the image of his son at the end of the age. And so the doctrine of the Imago Dei in a postmodern age where where all has been deconstructed and the individual is left to try and define who they are from within themselves, which is impossible, God is providing for us this answer um, through the community of God, through the Imago Dei, the, the Ecclesia, um, where we can actually come to arrive at this eternal truth called the gospel, where we can ca get caught up and become participants and become members in this body. Um, so here's some implications, I think, for Grenz of this idea that the Imago Dei is this this almost redefining um, theological theme that helps us in the postmodern age make sense of who we are and what we were created for. It, it reinstills our passion and purpose um, and the way we 
even learn to believe in it, the way we become followers of Jesus, can only happen within the context of the community, the church. So here's some implications for Grenz. Um, we can't represent God alone because God in himself is a social being. He's the social trinity, um, a, cre- a being of love, right? And we need God and others to express love, to change, to become our true selves. So there's, there's no uh, individual lone rangers who are following Jesus. You need a community um, to reflect the image of God. And in a sense, I love, Grenz has this whole little subset story in that book, The Social God and Relational Self, where he talks about even how, like, in creation, the, the sexual differentiation of people it is a sign of our incompleteness as individuals, right? So like written into our DNA and our genetics, we are fundamentally incomplete as individual humans. Now, for him, he's very clear that um, marriage is not the only way for people to fulfill that communal completion um, and remove themselves from isolation, but also mutual friendship is kind of an inclusive expression of God's love that allows us to participate in and experience and, and become fully human. Um, and so for Grenz, the church is not just uh, a country club or an organization that runs events and gathers people in buildings. Um, it, is, it is a spiritual reality that uh, we come to participate in and get caught up in. So in an age of deconstruction, the church's role is not necessarily to argue or defend Christianity's objective truth to the world, but to prophetically invite the world to come and experience the identity and destiny that the gospel offers. Uh, the church offers an answer to this, the fragmented self who doesn't, who, who is, who is, who is lost in a sense in this postmodern age, the church offers an answer that echoes from eternity past um, that you are designed with this purpose and this destiny and you are dearly loved and chosen and adopted into this family. And the local body of believers, the local church expression, not the universal mystical church in that sense of spanning geography and time, Um, But the local church is to provide the social community in which a person can learn the story of God, begin to participate in it, and become caught up in and possessed by the truth of this gospel, right? That, That they are children of God dearly loved. And not only do they not need to self validate, but this identity that is given by the, the message of Christianity is, is, a identity that lies before you. It is eschatological. It's your destiny. And, and therefore, it cannot be touched. It cannot be challenged. It cannot be um, removed by circumstances or performance or anything at all. Anything you do, um, it is imposed and given to you as a gift. And, you know, in Christian language, in the New Testament, we call this grace, unmerited grace. So it's within this fellowship of believers, the messiness of relationships and growth, conflict, challenge, that we become formed in the image of God, made to be like Christ. And further, it's within this community of believers that, that we become members in this mystical body of Christ, that we come to participate in the triune love of God through the Holy Spirit. By participating in a church community, something very profound is happening for Grenz, right? That the living God who created the world is incarnating himself in the present age. And thus the church under the new covenant is the fulfillment of this vocation that was given in Eden. And it's the, it's the preview of the destiny of all humanity at the end of the age. And Grenz, so Grenz writes this, The biblical drama depicts the new humanity as the final outworking of God's intentions for humankind back from the beginning to be the image of God according to the pattern disclosed by Jesus, who is the true Imago Dei. 
And so again, it's almost like for Grenz, this idea that we're created in the image of God from Genesis, we don't under, there's no way we could have understood it or anyone could have understood it until the incarnation and until the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Christianity is not meant to argue someone into belief, but the body of Christ, the church, can embody, invite, and confront the world with a different way to be human. And the church is this prophetic community that both embodies and calls the world on this adventure of following Jesus, calls the world to this identity of being found in the Father as a beloved son or daughter. And the body of believers thus creates not only not only not only does it contain the messaging, but it creates the place where someone may discover or be discovered by the truth of the gospel through their participatory, linguistically constructed, narratival, pragmatic, fiduciary, communitarian, trinitarian, eschatological experience within that body and community. And again, for Grenz, some of these advances in epistemology and and all these different things in the social sciences, they're not threatening. They're just, they're just descriptively explaining the profound mystery that the church has always modeled and done. That for 2,000 uh, years, the church has been forming people in this identity and this, this vision of becoming like Jesus through all of these methods and all these ways. The last little section, the third part of Grenz's book, The Social God and Relational Self, and the last section of my paper, I kind of dive into a bit more of philosophy, but it gets a little swirly, and uh, so I'm not going to go into much depth. I'll just kind of suffice it to say that this linguistically constructed community called the church, right? It's a linguistically constructed community in the sense of it, it derives its primary language and and terms and motifs and stories from this thing called the scripture, uh, the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, and then the New Testament writings of the apostles and the early church. And what makes this community different than any other community that might exist is the story, the language, and the logic is the product of the activity of God on the earth. Or at least those who are choosing to follow Jesus believe it is true. We believe that we that this story wasn't just made up. Or in the words of you know the Apostle Peter writing in the New Testament, he says, the prophets were just not making up words on their own. They were they were mouthpieces for the very words of God. And so there's this idea in the way the authority of Scripture functions that it is divine revelation. Um, and we've talked a little bit about some of the nuance we can add to what that means and how it functions. But, but at the end of the day, as Christians, we believe that the story given in Scripture and the story that we're invited in to participate in through the, the heritage of the church is the story that gives access to reality. So I guess, I don't know, this is a silly metaphor, but the best way I can like explain what Grenz tries to summarize in this chapter. For those that have ever played Mario, when you're running through a level, there's always these little green tubes. And some of the tubes have little flowers that pop up and shoot fire at you. Some of the tubes are just duds. And some of the tubes you can kind of squat down and press on them and you actually go into them and sink into like another room or another place. And I guess the best way I can describe it is for Grenz, the the constructed worldview and the, the story of God that the church passes on and then also participates in and embodies, right? As the Imago Dei. That story gives access to another room. It gives access to reality itself. So for Grenz, the thing that's most true about the world that we can know is the unconditional love of God as revealed through the cross and through Jesus Christ and the story of God's working with Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Israel, right? And so it is because that the the Christian story is grounded in the reality of God, that it is reliable 
or trustworthy or in any sense true and and kind of in in a way connects the tunnel like the Mario analogy between what postmodernism says we've been stuck in that we're just stuck in epistemology we're stuck in our perceptions and our pluralism and we can't pierce through it to touch reality but for grands it's the it's true we are stuck there but god from the ground of reality from metaphysics from ontology god has crossed that ditch crossed that gap and he has spoken and revealed himself through his activity in the earth through his interactions with people who seek him and and try to know him through then ultimately the incarnation and at pentecost the the sending of the holy spirit breaking out on humanity so so for grens postmoderns are right that we are trapped in our perspectival knowledge based on our culture and our biases and our perspectives but god has acted and pierced through from the other side right nature is not just a passive thing that exists but for grens and for anyone who follows jesus the foundation of nature is this this outward flowing loving god and he has acted and pierced from his side into the epistemological he's made a way for us to tap into reality to tap into the most eternal truth of all creation that we are intended and destined and desired to be part of his family that we are unconditionally loved and accepted just as we are that we are invited to be adopted into this thing called the family of God uh, as sons and daughters. And Jesus then doesn't just fix the sin problem of individual or systemic behavior, but Jesus is fixing the epistemological problem of us being stuck in our blindness and hopelessness of not knowing how to move forward, not knowing how to solve sicknesses and diseases not knowing how to govern ourselves politically, not knowing who we are or how we should live. And I'll close here with a final story about Paul that Drenz kind of retells in depth at the end of his book. And it's, it's the story in Acts 17 of Paul speaking at the Areopagus to these kind of philosophically trained people in this you know Greek-Roman city. And Paul comes into this place and he draws from some of the cultural frameworks and philosophies that were dominant during that day to make a connection point for the gospel. So he he meets the culture where they're at by engaging them rationally in language that they understand, quoting their philosophers, and tries to then kind of demonstrate how it's incoherent and not logical for them to practice this idol worship that they do with worshiping these statues and and he he pokes at them a little the irony like many postmodern westerners that that god is near to all of us even if we do not perceive him even if we're kind of stumbling around in the dark right so there's almost this epistemological gap where god is reality in reality god is near but we don't perceive him and he he kind of makes the connection to this idol statue they have to an unknown god and and so he's building on this kind of plausible rational cultural engagement much like grens did his whole career and then in the end of his exhortation uh, we see paul who was being presented by luke almost as a you know a socrates like philosopher arguing in the courts of the city paul reveals his cards and he invites his audience not through argument but through repentance to believe and follow Jesus, the Messiah, to believe in the resurrection. And so I think this story, I think for Grenz, he he almost finds an identification with, he's projecting a bit, his own career and journey as a philosopher-theologian, that his intention and heart of engaging the culture, at the end of the day, he he recognizes he can't argue or convince anyone to follow Jesus. He can use rationality to try and clear the way so that someone might be able to see the truthfulness and experience the truthfulness of Christianity. But at the end of the day, the only way you enter into faith, the only way you enter into being possessed by the truth of the gospel is on your knees, not with proof or certainty or rationality. 
that I think in many ways is the legacy of what Stan Grenz has left us as modern Christians, postmodern Christians living in a postmodern age. It's this legacy of using our minds and brains and rationality to try and clear the way so that the renewal and the, the mysterious, wonderful, beautiful work of God might take hold of our lives once again, that the church might find renewal not through strategy, not through its own ingenuity and clever teaching or clever theories, but that it would be a community that is prophetically utterly dependent on the revelation of God and the word of God, uh, both what he has spoken in the past and what he is speaking in the present and leading us to in the future. So, Thank you guys for sticking with us. I'll, we'll be posting one more lecture just as kind of a summary reflection on a few things to wrap up this course. But we really appreciate you taking the time. I hope it's been helpful, fruitful, and life-giving for your mind, heart, body, and soul. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.